morning. Thank you, Femi. Thanks, Sally. So, how do you respond? How do you react? How do you feel after reading that? How do you feel after hearing that being read? Confused? Troubled? Afraid? Anxious? Disturbed? Or blessed? I realize that last one might seem a bit weird, a bit surprising. But let me take you back to week one of this series. I want to take you back to September, back to the very start of Revelation, because as the revelation of Jesus Christ is introduced, we read this, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. And so, for reading and listening to these verses today with an open heart and an open mind, we are promised blessing. And I want you to hold on to that thought this morning as we get into what at almost any level you look at it is a truly awful passage. And so however you reacted, however you felt as Femi read, however you feel now, you are blessed. We are blessed. And so we come to the seven bowls, which as we heard from verse 7 of chapter 15, are filled with the wrath of God. Now, the wrath of God, which immediately raises all kinds of heckles and concerns and questions for some, it's mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 15, it's mentioned in verse 7 of chapter 15, and three times in chapter 16, it appears, although the wrath of God is revealed and it plays out in that entire chapter. But the wrath of God is not a revelation thing. It's not exclusive to this letter. It's mentioned throughout Scripture. It's all over the New Testament. And no matter how you feel about it or you struggle with it, it is part and parcel of the nature of God. Rip wrath out of Scripture. Rip wrath out of the character of God, and you're no longer left with the God of the Bible. You're left with a version you're left with a lesser God. You're left with some form of a human construct. Now, whenever we read about or we consider God's wrath, we need to be very clear what we are talking about and what we are not talking about. The wrath of God is not some kind of an intense emotional flare-up of anger where God somehow loses it and lets loose verbally and actively the way we sometimes do. It's not an irrational, uncontrollable outburst where God has been sitting seething for some time and eventually he explodes and he goes off in one. The wrath of God is, and I'm quoting someone else here, it is God's strong and settled position to all that is evil, a strong and settled opposition arising out of his very nature. God's wrath is a burning zeal for the right coupled with a perfect hatred for everything that is evil. That's not me trying to justify God's wrath or excuse God's wrath. 
That's me just trying to acknowledge it, define it. And so as we double back again, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a second, but as we get back into reading about the divine judgment of God in these two chapters, in these seven bowls, as we encounter the wrath of God being unleashed severely and with a sense of finality on this world, what we have got, again, to quote someone else, what we have got in Revelation 16 is an awful scene, an awful picture of how awfully serious God is about right and wrong about good and evil. And so as we push into this a bit more this morning, I want us to see, and I'd love you if you have a copy of God's Word open in front of you to be at Revelation 15, but I want us to see where the seven angels with the seven plagues in those seven bowls, I want us to see where those seven angels come from. We need to note where this plays out from. We need to know the setting of this scene, if you like. So chapter 15, the first verse, verse 5 that Femi read was this. After this, I looked, and remember, what did John see next? After this, I looked, and I saw in heaven the temple. That is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. And it was out of the temple that the seven angels with the seven plagues came. Down to verse eight, and the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. So, they come from the tabernacle of the covenant law. If you've got a different version, if you've got an ESV, for example, it will say the sanctuary of the tent of witness. And as was again, as we've been saying all along in this series, you kind of need to have some understanding of the Old Testament if you want to read Revelation well and right. And so back there, back in the Old Testament, this tent, this tabernacle contained, amongst other things, the stone tablets on which were written the Ten Commandments, God's abiding moral law, God's design for how we were created to do life, not only individually, but also within community, how we were created to live, what we were, how we were created to speak and to act and to behave. Problem is, humanity violates God's law. It goes against that created reality. And what it ends up doing, it ends up ruining themselves. Humanity ruins itself and ruins the world around it. And therefore, there are consequences. And the pouring out of the bowls from this place, from this tabernacle, from this tent, signifies the natural consequences of violating God's abiding moral law. Live your own way as opposed to God's. Do your own thing, and you will have to give an account. Judgment is inevitable. Second thing about this tent and this tabernacle is that this was the place where people met with the living God. That's also called the tent of meeting, where God's presence was visible, tangible, pillar of cloud upon it by day, pillar of fire by night. God's glory filled this place. This was where the essential character and nature of God was revealed and experienced. It was here that God's holiness, it was here that God's burning zeal for everything that is right, coupled with perfect hatred for everything that is evil, was explicitly known. And so these bowls, these judgments flowing from or being poured out from that place, from this holy place, is again the logical response, the awful logical response of holiness of a holy God to evil and impurity. 
which ultimately in one day will be totally defeated and destroyed, making way for a brand new world, which is God's plan. But it's got to happen. And remember, judgment is not an end in itself. For those who get off and thinking it is, it is not an end in itself. It is a means to an end. The goal is the reconciliation of all things and the creation of a new heaven and a new earth where reconciled humanity flourishes together in the presence of God and the Lamb. It's the goal. But let me stick with the character of God for a moment because embedded in this text today, amidst the mess and amidst the horror, are reminders of God's divine attributes. And the reason I want to, I want to highlight these these is because I want us to stay focused on the greatness, on the otherness, on the bigness of the God we worship or the God we refuse to worship. And so chapter 15, verse 7, again, right at the end, it says, and of the, one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels the seven bowls full of the wrath of God, and then adds this bit, who lives forever and ever. God is the eternal, the everlasting one. He is the one without beginning and without end. Down to verse 8, and the sanctuary was filled with the smoke of the glory of God and from his power. He is the powerful he is the glorious one. Chapter 16, verse 6, where an angel declares of God, just are you, God, holy one. He is the exclusively unique and entirely fair one. Verse 7 of chapter 16, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. He is the one, true, all-powerful, trustworthy God. And I want to draw attention to those because I want to make sure that we retain the right posture this morning. I want to make sure we retain the right posture before the eternal, powerful, glorious, just, holy, true, trustworthy God. God is not in the dock this morning. Okay, so these bowls are the third set of judgments in Revelation that John sees. There's been two before them. There's been the seals, there's been the trumpets. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. Seven is the number of perfection, it's the number of completion. There are three sets of seven, completely complete. The judgments of God are completely complete. And ultimately, the judgments of God are against evil. They are against six, six. Six. They're against the number of imperfection, incompleteness. They're against the dragon and the two beasts, this unholy trinity, who are completely incomplete. So seven trumps six every time. God wins. But we know that because we've read to the end. Now, I mentioned a moment ago about doubling back so let me explain. We've been saying all along that the events in Revelation are not entirely linear. They're not chronological. We don't ask what happened next. We're not meant to be constructing timelines and sequence schedules. 
No, there is a sense in which the seven bowls are a third go-around of the same reality depicted in the seven seals and the seven trumpets. What is that reality? That reality is judgment. In other words, we see them from one perspective. We see them through one camera lens, from one camera angle. Then we see them, the same thing, from another perspective, another camera lens, another camera angle, and then we see the same thing from a third perspective. This idea that they're related can be seen, for example, if you look at the seven bulls, which we have arrived at today, alongside the seven trumpets. So, the first trumpet affected the earth. The first bull affects the earth. The second trumpet affected the sea. The second bull affects the sea. The third trumpet affected the rivers. The third bull affects the rivers. The fourth trumpet affects the sun. The fourth bull affects the sun. You get where I'm going with this? The fifth trumpet impacts the pit of evil. The fifth bowl impacts the throne of evil. The sixth trumpet affects the river Euphrates. The seventh bowl affects the river Euphrates. These three sets of seven overlap, at least somewhat. They technical term, they recapitulate. They recapitulate. With each set of seven, we're brought to what appears to be an end point only to, to discover that they start again. So let me, let me illustrate this. With the seven seals, this is what we read, if you were part of the series, this is what we read in Revelation 6 about the seals. The great day of there, that is the great day of God's and the Lamb, the great day of God's and the Lamb wrath has come. So this is it, chapter 6. And then when the seventh seal is opened, you'll remember there is a silence in heaven as the prayers of the saints of God are gathered before him, and it just feels like the end, but it isn't. Because then John sees the seven trumpets, and they lead up to the point in chapter 11 where we read this, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. It's the end. It's not. We start over again. Seven bowls, which also end in chapter 17 of verse 16 by saying, it is done. But it's not. It's not quite. It's not until you get to chapter 19 that we finally come to the end. Now, in saying all of that, it is not simply a case of these judgments are going round in circles. Because with these judgments, there is progress. So in the seventh seal, in the seven seals, again, for those of you who are here, you will know that a fourth of the earth was affected. And so the fourth horseman had authority over a fourth of the earth. Then when you come to the seven trumpets, you see the seas, a third of the world affected, a third of the world is burned. And then in the bowls, there are no fractions. Because it's total. To quote verse 1 of chapter 15 as it introduces the bulls, for with them the wrath of God is finished. It's finished. The most significant difference between the seals and the trumpets and the bulls is the scope of the bulls. There's now a finality of judgment. This is now the end near the end of the world as we know it. And so the bowls themselves. Now remember, this form of writing that we find in Revelation, 
this apocalyptic form. It is not one we're used to. It's not one we're familiar with in the same way as those reading it for the first time were. And so we, we've got to be honest about this, we sometimes find it so hard even to begin to get our heads around it. It's deeply symbolic. It contains wild and graphic images that convey reality and communicate vital messages through symbolism. And so in Revelation, Jesus gives John vision after vision of this nature. And what does John do? John records what he sees next. He records what he hears next. He was given this audio-visual presentation of audio-visual symbols which symbolically present and reflect present reality and future reality. And so this means we've got to be incredibly careful about how and as we read this kind of literature. Its imagery is meant to hook us. Its imagery is meant to draw us into reality. It's meant to grab hold of us. It's meant to stir our emotions. But we mustn't take and interpret everything at face value every single time. And so, for example, in Revelation 5, we're given a vision of Jesus as a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns. That is not the form in which Jesus exists. But when we meet Jesus, we will discover that he is perfectly wise, symbolized by the seven eyes. He is perfectly and immensely strong, symbolized by the seven horns, and he bears the scars of a sacrificial lamb. And throughout Revelation, and this is a characteristic of this type of literature, John sees and he hears all kinds of things given to him by Jesus in vision form. And John then describes the symbols of realities that are being conveyed to him. And so when it comes to Revelation 15 and 16, we are not meant to start looking for seven angels holding seven bowls full of awful stuff. And then watch as they pour one of these bowls into the sea, for example. But we, what we are meant to see, and this is crucial, what we are meant to see and what we are meant to get is a further symbolic presentation of the awful, awful reality of God's impending judgment and wrath. So the imagery is almost like a shock and awe effect. It arrests our attention because it's meant to and so, for example, people breaking out in painful and harmful sores, gnawing their tongues because they worship the beast. In other words, they don't worship God. It's provocative. Of course it is. Why? Because the reality is that God's final judgment, when it is revealed, is going to be a time of great distress for those who dismiss God, for those who refuse to repent. One of the striking aspects and sad realities of judgment and the multiple warnings regarding it that we find in Revelation is the decision on the part of many people to remain unrepentant and to rail against God. Twice in chapter 16, despite the reality of God's impending and actual judgment, we read that people refuse to repent of their deeds, they refuse to give glory to God, and they actually reach the place where they just curse the God of heaven. Now, the New Testament is clear. 
And I know we've been here before, but the new scripture is clear. God does not want any to perish. He does not want, that is his deep desire, that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. This is one of the reasons we are still here. This is one of the reasons why the end hasn't come yet. This is one of the reasons why Jesus has not returned. Just before this verse in 2 Peter, the apostle is responding to some people who are dismissive of this whole idea that Jesus is ever coming again. People are dismissive of this whole idea that the world is ever going to face judgment again like it did in the time of Noah. And so Peter makes the point that because God is trustworthy, because his word is trustworthy, and what he said will happen one day, just like it did happen in Noah's, and let me quote Peter, he said, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. They're being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So this is inevitable. It is going to happen. And again, in amongst this, you've got the whole thing of a, a year is like a thousand day, day, or a day is like a thousand years to God, and a year is like a thousand days, and all that. This is inevitable. This will happen at some point. But immediately after Peter says this and explains it, he shares what's the primary reason why it hasn't happened. Because he says, "Listen, God is not slow in following through in His word. Why? Because He does not want any to perish, but that all would come to repentance." And so God is patiently given time for people to turn to him, time to get right with him. There is ample opportunity, but it is time bound. One day the bowls will pour. One day the wrath of God will be finished. And tragically, even then, people will curse God and refuse his offer of mercy. And there is a chilling phrase in chapter 16. Now, there's lots of chilling phrases in chapter 16. But there's one chilling phrase that we need to pay attention to. It's in verse 6. That's this. Sorry. It says it's what they deserve. You see, judgment, God's judgment is justified. Spend your life breaking God's moral code. Spend your life dismissing God, cursing God, rejecting Jesus and the blood that he shed for you. Living a non-godly and a godless life, given that God has gone to extreme lengths to rescue you and warn you. Then, whenever you face and stare down the inevitable consequences, there is a real sense that you're getting what you opted for. I think I quoted J.I. Packer a couple of weeks ago. He said, nobody stands under the wrath of God save those who have chosen to do so. God does not want any to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. He's not going to force that. And people don't need to stay under the wrath of God. There's a way out from all of this horror. Provided by Jesus the Lamb. Provided for you. Not because you deserve it. Not because I deserve it. But because God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to be that sacrificial lamb for you. 
to be that sacrificial lamb for your sin, for your forgiveness, for your freedom, for your future in a new heaven and a new earth in the eternal presence of God and the Lamb. In Ephesians 2, Paul talks about the fact that all of us were under God's wrath, every single one of us. Because we were dead in our sin, but by the love and the grace and mercy of God, those who have been made alive in Christ, those who believe in Jesus, those who have repented and have been rescued, they come out from, they no longer live under the wrath of God. This, as I say, is God's deep desire for you. But if you keep pushing them away, if you keep living for yourself, if you keep ignoring these realities, then this vision of impending judgment, it will materialize and that will be truly horrific. And for those of us who find ourselves in Christ this morning, who no longer remain, John 3, 36, who no longer remain because we believe in Jesus, we no longer sit under the wrath of God. May this awful text fuel our gratitude, inspire our worship, and drive us to our knees for those who still don't believe. There's a really interesting, almost aside in chapter 16 that's written to Christians. It's really important we hear this, church. It's verse 15. If you've got an ESV version of Scripture, you'll notice that it's actually put in brackets to give this idea that it is a bit of an aside, but it's two Christians who are here. Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on so that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. This idea of the very end and Jesus coming like a thief has been muted before throughout the New Testament. In fact, Jesus himself said it. But to those who are ready for it, to those who are awake and dressed, to those who are alert and prepared, in other words, to those who are Christians, they will be blessed. And this in itself is a very specific word of warning to Christians who may be dozing off to these realities. To Christians who are shutting their eyes and losing sight of judgment and the importance of living for God to the very end. Do you know, back in Revelation 3, if you were here on Sunday evenings before Christmas, as we looked at those seven specific messages to the seven churches, you will know that one of the messages to one of the churches picks up on this very issue. And so the message to the church in Sardis is this, wake up. It's the Christians, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you received and what you heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now remember, it's written to a church. It's written to believers who are clearly nodding off and who need to be jolted awake. And so if you're a sleepy Christian this morning, I don't mean physically because I know we all are. I can see that. <laughs> but if you're a sleepy Christian this morning spiritually, then allow the sobering and disturbing words regarding final judgment, regarding God's wrath in Revelation 16 to cause an alarm clock to go off and to bring you back into the room.
need to finish. And I know I haven't drilled into every detail of those verses that Femi read. But as we move forward from here and we now zoom in, because that's what we're going to start to do, we now zoom in to reveal more about the judgment of Babylon and the whore of Babylon. We'll get to talk about that next week. Great. So we move forward from here and we zoom in to reveal more about the judgment of Babylon, the defeat of the beast and its armies, and the final defeat of Satan in the next few weeks. I just want to go back to how I started this morning. Blessed are those who read this. Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. And so may we take to heart what we find written here, no matter how confusing, how disturbing, or how otherwise we find it. And may we know the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit resting on us now and forever. Guys, you're going to come back. We're going to finish with a song that's based on the worship of heaven. The song we sang just before Femi read, many of you will know, King of the Ages, is based on Revelation 15 that we looked at last week. And now we're going to sing another song that we find the words of in Revelation. Salvation belongs to our God. So let's stand and sing together.